And some people where I worked at the time complained to HR um, and the complaint ended up going up to a very senior level because it was construed that I was trying to set up a right-wing fascist organisation. Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So my guest today is Alexandra Chesterfield. She is the co-author of a new book out in September 2021 uh, called Pulls Apart, Why People Turn Against Each Other and How to Bring Them Together. It is a look at political polarization in our society, how we've gotten to this point and what we can do about it. Jonathan Haidt called it a fascinating read, which will help anyone who wants to step out of the polarization cycle and become part of the solution. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing about Alex's background. She has a master's degree in cognitive and decision science, and she's been using that background to apply insights from you know those, those fields in, in, in real-world settings, and I think she's done some really interesting work. She was also, I was surprised to learn in the course of the conversation, an elected counselor in Guilford for the Conservative Party. So for her book, her co-authors are Laura Osborne, who is a professional communicator, and Alison Goldworthy, who uh, was uh, one of the people who helped create the first depolarization course at Stanford. And so it's an interesting book because it not only incorporates psychological research and insights, but also brings a diversity of perspectives from people who uh, you know have backgrounds in several different fields. So it's it's definitely for anyone who's interested in polarization, who's maybe seen a lot of psychological representation enter into that conversation. It's a very interesting addition to that discussion. And so in this episode, we have essentially a conversation of two parts. In the first, we talk a lot about Alex's background, uh, largely centering around being a person with conservative-leaning principles and tendencies in predominantly liberal environments, such as university and the workplace in which Alex found herself. And then this sets the stage for a discussion of the work that her and her co-authors present in their book. Uh, And I also ask about the limits of what psychology can teach us about effective depolarization. The idea being that a lot of times when we hear about depolarization and coming together and the research on that topic, it's often from people who have done that research and are therefore invested in the idea that that research is a key part of the solution um, because, well, that's their research. That's their their story telling. So I was interested to hear from her who has the ability to interpret that research, um, but not necessarily the investment in it being the end-all be-all, what she thought about that. So at any rate, there's also a uh, paper that we discussed. You can find the link to that in uh, the show notes. Uh, but it was it was a fun conversation. I think we touched on a lot of cool topics. And so without any further ado, here is Alexandra Chesterfield. So Alex, the, the first thing I usually like to ask people about is where did you grow up? Ah, oh, great question. Um, I grew up in a really um, small town called um, Hayward Seath, and I typically say it's the kind of town you, well, it's the town you go through on the train from London to Brighton to the sea, mm. um, and it's very near Gatwick Airport. But whenever I say it's near Gatwick Airport, people typically assume that I grew up on the runway of Gatwick, which I definitely, <laughs> definitely did not. But so it's just it's near, it's near. Yeah, nice. And what what was that like? Was that uh, was that slow, or what, what did your what was your family like? What did your parents do? So my parents are from up north. So um, my mum's from Liverpool. So right in the in the middle of Liverpool, a place called Old Swan. My dad's from Rochdale, so Manchester. Um, and they both left their respective cities like after school, so they didn't go to uni. Um, they left they left home to travel. So my dad joined the navy, and my mum actually randomly ended up going to Italy. So she started off kind of au pair and looking after kids, and then ended up working um, for the the British embassy. So they were always keen to kind of travel and explore, and then. They ended up coming back um, to the UK um, to get married and then ended up settling in, yeah, like just near, well, in Hayward Heath where I was, um, where I was born. So it's quite, it's kind of, it's a commuting town. Um, and do you know what? I love it. Lots of my, my parents still live there. Lots of my friends um, from school are all still there. And where I live now, I was only about an hour away. Um, and I probably would have gone back there to live, but my, um, 
partner works in uh, where he works is is, is difficult it's, it's good to be where we are it's a bit just a bit too far away from the kinds of places that he works in but now I you know I love I love it so it's probably I think outsiders probably describe it as really dull um, <laughs> and probably really sleepy um but do you know what I have very yeah very fond memories of it and I said a lot of friends and my family are still there yeah fair enough and uh and just out of curiosity where where are you based now so I'm in Guildford so um which again for any I guess it will my geography personally is really poor so for any people any listeners out there with people um skills geography skills like mine it's in surrey so about 40 minutes from london um and it's quite near the the hampshire yeah the hampshire border so yeah quite near but my family a lot of my family is still in the north as well um and yeah growing up it's really it was really interesting because politically we were quite different um my accent sounded quite different from them um, I said I was the first person to go to uni in my family. Um, so I always felt a bit different. Um, but, um, yeah, always felt very, like, God, it sounds really cheap, like, loved. But it felt different, <laughs> a bit yeah. alien. Um, but, no, I loved, yeah, love it. I'm curious to kind of probe as to what what were those those uh, those differences? Baldly put, like, what did, what did that entail? Yeah, so I guess I said my mum and dad, they left school at 16 and they always um, had a, you know, my dad had a really strong worth. Like I said, my mum had three jobs at one point. She was, um, uh, you know, it was, she was a cleaner. She used to work in my the sixth form college I went to. She used to work in the library there. Then she worked in a local um, bank in the kind of back office. So always worked really hard, but always, and always just growing up, like put a lot of emphasis on, you know, just trying your hardest. And as long as you're happy, then that's that's the the thing that we care about the most. And I loved school and loved learning and then ended up, you know, doing um, really well in my uh, GCSEs. I think they're still called GCSEs. I think all the exam systems always changing and then A-levels and ended up going, yes, yeah, so it ended up going to uni. And I never, in terms of politics, I've never, ever growing up among those families like where we talked about politics around the dinner table um like, i remember watching i loved all the soaps like brookside coronation street um and we just i don't know just i guess did normal you know went out with friends um and family and it was only when i got actually even at university i said it wasn't a i, I did my undergraduate cardiff and actually did english literature um so I was always drawn to stories and you know why people did what they did and, and that i guess that ability to get a window um on a particular world through different books um but again was very unpolitical at uni that wasn't a very politicized university i just do you know what i think if you'd asked me who the prime minister was and i'm probably really embarrassed to say this now but i maybe would have known the prime minister but anyone beyond that like a cabinet or or her cabinet or who the chancellor was wouldn't have known and it's only when i entered the world of work that um it was not like i got onto a graduate scheme and people were very um I guess political and talked lots about public affairs and um, politics. And it was only then that I began to kind of, I guess, be instinctively drawn to one party over another. But it was definitely not ideological. Like I remember people saying, "Are you on the left or the right?" and just having no idea what they meant. Like, what does that even mean? Um, and it was so it became quite an instinctive thing rather than ideological. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so let's let's uh, take take a few steps in there. So you. Uh, studied English literature for yeah. undergraduate. Um, yeah. And then after that point, what was your, what was your first move after undergrad? So I got onto a, um, actually after my undergrad, I, I remember going to the careers department um, at university and they said, okay, you've got an English degree so you can teach. Um, and I had done teaching actually as a work experience placement in my local, in my primary school actually that I had gone to. And I remember, um, you know, I didn't did it for a week, but I remember feeling incredibly frustrated and uh, just realised I had no patience. And I've got two children of my own now and I absolutely love them, but I realised I was a rubbish teacher and came out feeling a lot of respect for teachers, but definitely knowing that I, I, was, I was not destined to be a teacher. So that was one option from the career service. The other option was advertising. And I remember them showing me an application form for um, Saatchi and Saatchi, like a big, Amer a bigger advertising company organization. And it was something like, what would you do with a rubber as in like an eraser rubber? And I had to write a whole essay on that. I thought oh, I'm definitely not creative enough to be an advertiser. And then the third last option they presented was public relations that you should go into public relations. You need to be able to write well. 
so anyway they said okay so well, I said kind of that was like the my I guess least worst option of the three that they offered um and I said okay well what do I need to do to, to kind of be a PR person and they said well one good option is we have an excellent school of journalism at Cardiff you should think about going on a you know postgrad very practical very applied course there so I did so it's kind of a postgrad postgrad diploma and the best thing about it was it was very applied and again did lots and lots of work experience placements um, in organisations that I probably never would have got into or even known about had I not done the course. And from that, got onto uh, a graduate scheme in London for a big advertising kind of comms, uh, public affairs organisations, etc. And one of the um, parts of the grad scheme was a research placement. And I started off on the grad scheme and did, you know, did was lucky enough to get offered jobs from all of them. And I initially decided to go into financial PR for a brief stint and then quickly realised it was kind of a bit of an epiphany. Do you know what? I am rubbish at bullshitting. I hate like feeling like I'm selling something and I'm really actually really interested in why we do what we do. Um, but because I got into a lot of debt as well, the financial PR place offered way more money than the research place. But eventually kind of my genuine motive, but genuine purpose won out. And the research consultancy said, you know, door is always open, come back. So I went to the research consultancy and I was there for four years. Um, and we were designing and delivering qualitative and quantitative research with different clients to help them work out what people were thinking and why they did what they did. And I loved it. And But then after probably about four years, I, I was always curious about what happened to my um, research. You know, what impact was it having on um, the end user? And decided to go in-house to an organisation called Witch. Um, and Witch, I don't know if anyone who, who's not aware of Witch, Witch is a, it's a consumer's organisation. It has a subscription model. It's actually a social enterprise. So it helps people to make decisions on things ranging from white goods like toasters and washing machines, all the way up to um, things like, you know, where should you invest your money or what are the best current accounts or savings accounts. So it helps people make choices and decisions. And all the money they raise from the, the subscription part of the business is actually quite a successful um, business goes into the charitable part of the business which campaigns for um, a fairer safer and simpler world for consumers and when I was there I then saw an opportunity to set up a, a behavioral science team but I had no formal training or qualifications in behavioral science this was just after this was probably around 2012 and I'll, I'll read nudge <laughs> which I'll come on to I can come on to later um, but yeah, I had no training. So I remember reaching out to work, uh, to their behavioural science group. Um, I'd read a lot about them. And uh, Nick Chato is a, a professor there. He's a great guy. And he said, actually, you should you should uh, you know, recommend various courses. And one of them was the uh, Master's at UCL in Cognitive and Decision Science. And um, I did that when my daughter was on maternity leave. And that's what got me really into um, yeah, into behavioral science. And I'm happy to, I'm going to pause there. I'm happy to tell you what happened after that. Um, <laughs> yeah, perfect. But I feel like I'm just, no, no, that's yeah, great. Yeah, should I carry on? No, no, I, you know, there's um, something I want to check on here, which is yeah. I heard a rumor from your publicist yeah. um, that uh, there was, you know, you uh, started a conservative book club or something to that effect at uh, w one of your jobs. So I was wondering if that was, and the uh at this point or was this later on or uh, uh what is yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah when does that yeah, come yeah. into play actually so let me tell you yeah let me say in parallel to the working at the research consultancy and then yeah. doing the masters and everything i was i was also elected as a local councillor for where i live really and, I, and where was this yeah, at the time so, so guildford so this, i live okay now. so yeah okay so where yeah, you live yeah. now got it yeah, yeah. So, in, so, so when I was on the grad scheme, this is where you know I was working with lots of people who worked in public affairs, and I began to like have quite like I'm quite pragmatic, as so I'm not ideological, and I, you know, kind of it was just quite an instinctive emotional attachment to the Conservative Party, and as I said, most of my family are from the north, and there were many of them are Labour voters, and this is again why I kind of they were a bit like whoa, black sheep, why are you, why are you like not only voting Conservative, but why are you actually standing to be, um you know, a member, an elected member of, of the Conservative Party. And it was always a thing for me around, I don't know, I believe that the, the principles of the Conservative Party were kind of working hard and providing opportunity for um, everyone and just being pragmatic. Um, you know, those were some of the core principles that attracted me. Anyway, so by that point, I was also elected as a, yeah, as a local councillor. I love being able to, to see the difference that working as a local councillor was able to make to my fellow neighbours and 
and community. Um, so I, yes, I probably, well, it was one of the places I worked. It was, it was um, between, you know, between university and where I am now, but I, you're right. I started up a conservative um, book club um, and, you know, the premise was um, why, you know, so again, it was quite probably, it was probably, it was probably quite unusual voting conservative and being under the age of 60. Um, and I was always struck why people were so, before you attach any party labels, when people talked about their views, their you know, broader worldviews and their values and their opinions on things, often you might align them to the conservative party or that they might vote conservative. But as soon as you got onto kind of which, which political parties they did vote for, they were horrified that they would, they would they'd even be associated with conservatives and that, you know, never, ever, ever vote that way. I was always really interested by it. So anyway, so I thought, great, well, I'm going to set up a conservative lunch club with a couple of like-minded uh, people. But the reaction was um, was a very strong one. And some people at, where I worked at the time complained to HR um, and the complaint ended up going up to a very senior level because it was construed that I was trying to set up a right-wing fascist organisation, which couldn't have been further from the truth. It was simply a lunch club to talk about <laughs> politics and why people under the age of 50 would ever consider voting conservative because you know so many people throughout my you know throughout well growing up were like oh you seem so nice and you don't seem at all conservative so I always felt like I had to justify it or I didn't talk about it or kind of hid it because it was just something that people well a either didn't do or b certainly didn't talk about so yeah it was a very strong um very strong reaction which again for me then was a trigger for for thinking about the book like why do I get such a strong reaction like why do people really turn against me as soon as I mention which party I'm associated with so I found it in the workplace found it on the doorstep as well you know canvassing with my daughter at the time who was only three very very uh lovely you know very cute all that so I was thinking great she's going to be a real asset and strike up a conversation on the doorstep and then uh, it would go really well talking about local issues and what I could help people with and as soon as I again mentioned the party people would um People would turn and swear and I've, I've been spat out. I've had bricks thrown at me. So, yeah, it really kind of led me to that question, like why why do people turn against each other and, and what can we do about it? Wow, yeah, there's so much there. So was this was this before your master's degree that this this started? This, I mean, this this kind of, uh, I don't know, not incident, but the, like, was, this, was this period before that, before you started studying psychology in earnest? some of it yes I definitely noticed I mean the response on the doorstep um so I've been involved in politics way before the the masters and I'd noticed that on the doorstep but in the in the workplace I'd say it's increasingly like that increasingly so yeah, yeah. wow yeah and then, so I guess I'm curious like uh do you I don't know, feel free to sort of tailor this question to, to however it, it, the answer is going to make sense. But what, what did you think you were doing at the time? So you had one foot in politics, um, you know, in your local area, you had one foot in this kind of uh, trying this new thing out with decision science. And then, that's sort of like, uh, and then you've got this sort of uh, kind of, I'm not going to say loss of innocence, but something along that lines uh, of like, wow, this is really this big identity thing that people take really seriously in this way that I is kind of shocking and um, in some respects baseless and that sort of stuff so I'm curious like just what yeah like where were you at um, during during this period in terms of trying to make sense of all that and your place within it yeah so so you know for me um, it was always about making I guess making an impact and making a difference so I saw I saw politics um, and, I guess, you know, research to trying to figure out why we do what we do and then what we can do to change individuals' behaviour or change the environment um, around us as a way to achieve that that change. Um, and the, I guess, the, the behavioural science and the research part helped me to understand why people reacted in such a way in the doorstep, but also the, I guess, some of the challenges in the way that, politics is is set up so you know again this is at very a very local level but i'm sure it goes on in all parties but i remember sitting in you know council chamber and debating um local issues for example like planning like you know how many houses might do we need to build and um 
you'd, you know, you'd get a text, you'd get a text, you'd receive a text message from someone in your party saying, you know, this is how we are all going to vote tonight. You know, are you on board? Um, and it was, you were, I'd seen experiences of, you know, fellow colleagues being ostracized if they didn't vote in a particular way. Um, so it's called, you know, the whip, whipping, I think. Whipping, obviously not literally, not physically being whipped, but the whip system. Um, and again, thinking this is how, so I was reading all about things like the importance of diversity and decision-making, diversity of thought. And I was like, how, how a political system set up is really not, um, you know, in some ways not leading to diversity of thought. And this is a real, this is a real issue. So on, for, for some of the world's biggest issues, you do need diversity of thought and, and respect between people who have different, different views. So, yeah, those things came together, I guess, gradually. Um, but actually, the, the, the act of writing a book has made me again rethink, like, why am I, why do I identify as a conservative? Like, why, why did I join the party? And, do, you know, try, like, I guess me turning the mirror on myself and examining, well, why do I believe what I believe? And is this still what I believe as well? So it's been a really, yeah, really, a really interesting process, both personally and, and professionally. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to hop into uh, I'm definitely going to ask you some questions about polarization and your 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 thoughts on those. And uh, they're mm. mostly pretty broad. And you feel free to intersperse any additional stuff that you in any t- in interesting tangents, feel free to go down them. But to, to sort mm. of make that segue, I guess. Yeah. Can you draw some lines between that background where um, you know, uh, okay, uh, I've got this sort of insight about how, you know, there's this sort of group dynamic behavior and everything like that that's playing out in society and wanting to make an impact with this background in psychology and decision science, that sort of stuff. How did you come to uh, write a, uh, a book with your co-authors on polarization? Yeah. My co-authors, um, Laura and Ali, we all met a witch um, to the Consumers Association, and then said so after that I went and then went to the financial regulator. And now I work at a, in a bank, um, and they went on. One of my co-authors went to Stanford um, to do a master's there, and she ended up uh, setting up with uh, an academic there. It's first depolarization course, and then my other co-author is a kind of professional communicator. And when Ali was at Stanford setting up this depolarization course, um, one of the the questions um, that somebody on the course Oh, so imagine they had a bunch of Republicans and Democrats in this lecture theatre at Stanford and, you know, beautiful, sunny um, California. And there was a lot of hostility in the room, in the lecture theatre, a lot of tension. And someone, I can't remember whether they were Republican or Democrat, but asked the question to the other side, um, when, you know, when did you last change your mind on something? And Ali remembers the tension in the room just dissolving um, and the hostility between uh people with different um you know parts or political affiliations uh you know just just disappearing and people began to think actually what did i have what have i changed my mind on and that just that it was such a powerful question so anyway she came back to the uk and uh, to see her family and friends and we had a, a few drinks as you do and said actually it would be really fun to set up a podcast asking people the same question so we pulled together our contact books we ended up buying a bunch of microphones from amazon and just started interviewing people, so leaders, uh, business, politicians, uh, journalists, about a time that they changed their mind and why. Um, and it was fascinating. Like it was, it's actually a really hard question. Those people said it was. It's actually really hard to think about something substantive. Obviously, we change our mind lots on maybe the smaller things in life. You know, what to have for dinner, what to wear. Um, you know, some attitudes that were less, I guess, less strongly hold on to. But the bigger things, it was really really difficult anyway so the podcast was really successful and that that then led to um yeah a conversation with a publisher about um turning it turning it into a book um called polls apart i said and in, in the meantime ali has done a lot of work at stanford on on depolarization depolarizing um bringing her campaigning background and then i said laura's done done a lot working out well how do we how do we communicate in a way that bring people can bring people more together rather than dividing people. And then I was, I was bringing that knowledge about, well, why, you know, why do we do what we do? I had to do a lot of reading around, I said, my background is more, I guess, individual decision-making, so judgment, decision-making and learning. And obviously a lot of polarization is around, um, as you said, around identity and around group dynamics. So yeah, I was rereading a lot of social psychology and political science to bring it all together into the book. Um, so polls apart. So since you were talking about the, uh, the the podcast and your uh you know sort of central question of it, what have you changed your mind on? 
I guess mm-hmm. I was sort of curious to know, uh, is there anything you've changed your mind on recently? And maybe a, a small change position on an innocuous subject or a long-term drift or something that happened a while ago even. Uh, but I'm wondering, if have, have you considered your answer to that question uh, after having, you know, sort of posed it to, to so many people? Because you're right, it is such a difficult question to, to answer. Yeah, that's such a good question. Really. So we did have, the three of us had this discussion quite early on because we were like, hang on, just as you've just said, we're asking these people, yeah. asking many people, the great and the good, this question, actually, we should ask it on ourselves. And it was really, it was really bloody difficult. So the thing, um, the thing that I had changed my mind on is um, like, kind of criminal I guess criminal justice and re- rehabilitation so I was probably a lot more on the right when I was younger and you know um if people do the wrong thing they should serve out their time in prison and we should make it sufficiently harsh that people don't do it again so it's probably quite a very unnuanced and basic view of the criminal justice system and then um do you know what though I'm, as I'm saying this I'm thinking what exactly changed my mind on it it might have just been as I got older and read more and mixed with more people and also doing being a local you know, counsellor working with um, different parts of the social service and I guess just being exposed to like way a much more diverse bunch of people from all walks of life just you know realise I guess come round will believe much more now in the I guess prison being a form of rehabilitation rather than as a place of um, punishment but I think more recently as I said just the act of, of writing the book and trying to understand and research about where where our beliefs do come from and um that has made me really think about well why am i a, why am i conservative you know why did i identify in this way and i think a lot of it is about um you know both what we inherit kind of biologically but also obviously our early years experience and the kind of values that we learn um and we observe from from our family and peers and respected others so it's really made me think like why why do I think this way? And I've probably become a lot less attached to the Conservatives and I've actually stepped right back from being quite active politically as well in the last year since really writing the book. It's made me really think, like, why why do I identify so strongly? So I have stepped back a lot. So that's probably the thing most recently that I've maybe not changed my mind on, but has really made me rethink or reflect on why do I hold, why do I identify in this way? So one of my favorite psychology papers of all time is uh, it was published a couple of years back uh, by a professor named Sam Gershman, and it's called uh, How to Never Be Wrong. And it's got this really, really cool insight, which I think is, is well aligned with a lot of the stuff that you, know, you were talking about in your own, you know, changing your mind and sort of introspecting into how, how that works, that sort of stuff. But the basic insight of this paper is that you have two different kinds of beliefs. You have uh, auxiliary beliefs and you have core beliefs. So your auxiliary beliefs are, oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think that criminal uh, justice should work on a deterrence basis. It's not the most important thing that, you know, you've ever given your, it's not the basis of your life. But, you know, Mm -hmm. one of your core beliefs might be that, well, people should work hard and uh, do uh, this sort of thing. That is a foundational belief uh, that, you know, has been with you since uh, early on. And Mm. so the point of this paper is that auxiliary beliefs form a kind of, uh, he calls it a protective belt around core beliefs. And so the idea that almost no one uh, changes any of their core beliefs at least not in any one instant flash moment, uh, is because for any specific core belief you have, it's protected by a number of these auxiliary beliefs. So if someone gives you an example of, oh, well, you know, here's this thing uh, that potentially is a counterexample to, you know, uh, some having to do with your working hard belief, then you can say like, well, okay, great, I'll change my mind on this auxiliary belief over here, but they've got all these other ones that are... um, uh, propping up that that thing nonetheless. So, for example, if, if my core belief is I believe in God, and then I look at some, you know, evidence from evolution or something like that, and then, uh, you know, this auxiliary belief of like, oh, Genesis 1, God did this in seven days, is sort of violated, I can say, oh, well... Actually, it's not literally seven days uh, or like 24 hours hadn't been invented yet. So it was this long time period and God still guided the thing. So even some sort of direct counter example to the core belief is, is, is brought there. And I think that that's one of the deepest insights 
that psychology in recent years has, has brought us the sort of basis of that. And uh, all that is to say that I think it's a really fascinating concept uh, that you guys mm. have been exploring in there. And it sounds like it's really uh, that, that, that thing that I've also grown to love is really, you know, sort of well aligned with that. It does sound, it does sound really, it sounds really yeah, similar to one of the insights we, we draw out in, in the book as well is around that your beliefs are not you. And if you can think of your beliefs as less like a possession, you know, it's more like a, it's more like a, it's something like detached from you um, that you can give up or you can change or distance yourself from that. That's a way of, and that's helped, that's helped me personally think about that the, the, the conservative beliefs that I have previously held maybe are not necessarily me and I, I can move on or change um, without, without changing who I am. Because that, that's what makes it really hard. You know, if it's not just giving up a belief, it feels like sometimes that you're changing who you are as a person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, I'm going to look up that paper after. So yeah, I'll send it to you. I think you'll be interested. Uh, yes, please. Look. Yeah. Um, so, but let's, let's build off what you're talking about there. So definitely, I think it's, it's fair to say that polarization is a topic that's been given a lot of airtime recently because I think it's such, I mean, it's a hugely important topic in society right now. And so I'm curious to hear in your own words, what is, you know, one of the things or an example of something that, that you and your co-authors want to add to this conversation that you think has been overlooked or you'd like to draw further attention to? Or, or, or how, how do you guys think about uh, what you're trying to say in the, the context of, of other di- discussions around polarization that are going on? Mm, mm. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, to totally agree. And obviously we, we cover this around the book is that polarization is, a, you know, deeply corrosive to us all, just not only as individuals, um, so, you know, just think about the, the Christmas lunches or the Thanksgiving dinners, um, but also to us as, you know, groups and, and, and society. Um, and when we look at the, you know, root causes of the problem, we do, you know, one of the conclusions we come to is that we are all, all part of the problem. Um, and therefore, and this is where I think we are different from some of the other, um, I guess, publications or, or, or commentary out there, is that because we're all part of the problem, we can all be part of the solution. So we really want the book to be a uh, wake-up call um, for us as individuals and, again, for, for leaders who are leading organisations, whether it's, it's political, third sector um, or private sector, to think, actually, how, how am I running my business? How am I running my teams? How am I running my organisations? How am I thinking about policy making? What am I doing that could be unintentionally driving more polarisation? Um how can I change? I said, what levers do I have to pull both personally and professionally to, to help us move forward? So a lot of the, one of the challenge, one of the biggest challenges we had with this focus on solutions and what can we do about it is that a lot of the research is based in the States, in the US. Um, and although we try to take a more kind of evergreen approach, we look throughout history, look throughout time and, and, and globally, you know, we do caveat that a lot of the research on what works to mitigate some of the root causes is done in the US with, with samples of students. So I think, again, there's a there's a call, kind of call to arms for uh, more, more research, I guess, to the academic community in this space and also for organisations that are probably running experiments and research. So, you know, social media companies, for example, um, you know, and how can they open up and be more transparent about what works um, and what worsens uh, polarisation as we're currently seeing it? So there's there's two things that I'm really curious to sort of hear your specific perspective on. Um, so uh, the first one would be if if we use your your own personal experience of that uh, you know sort of conservative lunch club as an example. You sort of described mm. what happened, and uh, you know maybe there are implications for polarization you know maybe maybe that wasn't a particularly polarizing thing but clearly there was some sort of tension that was built up by these sort of conflicting uh identity alignments and that sort of stuff so from your perspective that you um uh sort of have developed through this book what would you look back and say that organization uh or you know leaders in that specific moment what what have you sort of like learned about that that you would say ah oh, I would have liked to see things play out like this and if we all kind of uh, were more likely to implement solutions like that then that might sort of move the dial on polarization uh, overall does that does that kind of make sense? Hmm. So I guess at the organization I was, I was at where this where this happened what could have been what was the what could have been the counterfactual I guess yeah I want you to draw a um, contrast between what happened which does 
I mean, it, it may not have like been especially polarizing per se, but it was clearly a, 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 a tension between effect- poles. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, draw yeah. a contrast between what did happen in your experience and now yeah. upon further reflection, what would, yeah. what would you have liked to have sort of seen? Yeah. So I guess basically it would have seen great welcoming of, you know, let's talk about um, the differences. You know, we have these individual differences. Let's allow the space and room um, and respect for people to to do that in a in a safe, very non-mandatory way. So it was a it was a lunch club inviting people to talk about and, you know, politics and think about why, why they think what they think. Um, so that would have been the ideal deal outcome. Actually, not even do you know what? Not even necessary a welcome or endorsement. Just a it's got you've got to shut it down <laughs> before it even started. So that would have been, I think, an ideal outcome. But I think, I think, um, stepping back from from that, um, there is something around how we think about diversity, and I think at the moment in organisations, it's often done very, very narrowly on um, you know demographic. Uh, diversity so what we observe so for example you know ethnicity and age or gender which are obviously all really really important but there are I guess many other types of diversity for example cognitive diversity and we we highlight in the book examples of where for example um, hiring decisions medical decisions legal decisions so decisions that are really outside of a narrowly political domain that are being influenced by someone's um, you know political or kind of partisan prejudices so i think for organizations as a as a longer term outcome something to think about is actually how do we think how do we define diversity how do we measure diversity how do we hire promote recruit train um in that way and should we be thinking about you know political diversity at a board level for example to make sure that we do have um you know different i guess different views because again in in different um organizations there's bound to be research on this, but my hypothesis would be that, that you get different kinds of um, political worldviews that self-select in. So, for example, um, you know, people that self-select into work in the civil service are probably more likely to be systematically different from people who self-select to work in a bank, for example, or private sector. So, but when, but but now, a lot of the, uh, I guess now a lot of organisations are being asked to think about how they can solve public or private some of the, some of the world's problems is well do we now need more of a diversity at at those more senior levels but even throughout the organization um to help solve some of these problems you know we can't do it through one uh, lens or, or just sort of a single worldview alone yeah so as yeah, a more absolutely as a more as a more longer term outcome i think thinking about how organizations think about diversity in its broadest possible sense would be a, a good place to to get to um I, yeah, fair enough. Um, I guess one one thing that I would maybe like if if we back up for a second, um, mm. uh, to to put into context some of the stuff that you you said there, I guess maybe can you give us a sketch of uh, sort of society's polarization as you and your co-authors understand it. So I guess you know in terms of polarization. Where are we, and and how did we get here, and what what is what does the current state of affairs look like? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think we, I guess, typically when people think about polarization, they think about issue polarization. So, for example, like climate change, you know, believers, or you climate change denier, or um, you know, or, or like abortion, for example, or uh, gun control, or euthanasia. So, is, you know, issues that are clearly polarizing. So, you have a camp group of people that are very pro of people that are very against and that is that is definitely a type of polarization but what we have seen in the in the data and this is particularly in the us but also examples i'll give us some in a minute uh, um, in the uk is is what's called as affective polarization um and you can think of this as, as polarization that's much more rooted in um i guess you know feelings rather than than facts so it's it's where we dislike and distrust people um who have a different identity to us. It's very much rooted in social identity rather than what people think. But what that means is that you can actually have people uh, from 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 different groups or you know different tribes, diff- you know different labels who actually are probably maybe pretty much aligned or actually think quite similarly on an issue. But because you have a different label or you're, you're attached to a different group, 
you you don't like them and you mistrust them and you're suspicious of them and you don't even actually want to talk you hate each other <laughs> so that's that's the problem we're talking about so in the uk um uh you know anecdotally uh, you know in my family there are there are kind of christmas lunches ruined by kind of brexit hostilities or it was it was interesting some of the data from um marriage guidance counselors that relate to the reported you know one in five of their marriage counselors reported that brexit was raised as a major cause of their uh, rocky relationships and survey data shows i think now like 50 percent in britain you know believe that the country is more divided than at any point in in their um lifetime and this goes as i mentioned a moment ago this goes way beyond politics so i think increasingly what we're seeing is people using labels that signify their wider values and attitudes um about themselves and about other people that that can make us either feel very very strongly repulsed or very strongly attracted to that other person so again for example think about you know um, vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers or, um, you know, mask wearing versus non-mask wearing or, or how we define generations. So, for example, you know, s- s- snowflakes. So it's, and, and these kinds of labels are, are impacting who we date, where we live, um, medical decisions, legal decisions. So decisions that shouldn't have anything really to do with, with politics. I guess, I guess and one other thing I'd come back to, um, again, on the data is there are, we don't have a really good single measure of polarization across mm. time and across countries. Um, but from many, there are many different signals suggesting that it is, it is getting, um, it is getting worse. Yeah. That, that, especially the, the survey data about the effect of Brexit on marriage as well. Wow, that's, that's, that's something else. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there the, are the, 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 what they call the social distance measures. So in the States, uh, actually, I think they're replicated in the UK as well. So, Again, for example, is it about 30, 30 years ago, um, only 5% of Americans uh, cared whether their child married someone of a diff- different political persuasion. I think now it's nearly half. Um, so they'd be really displeased if their child married a member of the opposing party. Um, yeah. Crazy. And there's similar proportions in the UK. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, there was a second thing that I sort of wanted to uh you know, go off of, of of what you were initially talking about. And uh, basically, the question that I want to pose to you is, is to what extent is polarization really a problem of psychology? And I guess just to say a little bit more about what I mean with this question is that so for one thing, like, you, know, you get a lot of these people who are, are studying uh, psychology, who are professors of psychology, do some sort of research on psychology, they definitely have a vested interest uh, in, you know, like they have a bias towards their own research being kind of like the key thing to understanding, you know, like what, what's sort of happening. And so that, that research might be very interesting, um, but it also maybe is, you know, being oversold in, the, in their story of thing. So I'm interested from your perspective as someone who knows a lot about psychology and has a background in psychology, but doesn't have to, you know, sort of contextualize it in the, you know, laboratory research you've been I have doing to publish. personally yeah <laughs> uh like what's what can psychology do for us here and what can it not do for us here what are the things that are you know not only diagnosable in psychological terms you know clearly a lot of what we're talking about is people are fractured along lines of identity and you know this causes imbalances and potentially violence within our society but, you know, even though that's the diagnosis, maybe it's it's about, you know, changing societal structure in certain ways, making sure everyone has a solid job, good life prospects, you know, they're taking care of an emergency. That's not really a problem. That's not really a solution having to do with psychology. That's making, you know, our democracies better. And then everyone would be a little bit less likely to beat everyone else's throats. Um, so, I, yeah, just give me your, your impression of, of what psychology can do for us here and what it can't. Yeah. So I'm going to begin with psychology is definitely not the silver bullet to this problem. That said, I think a better understanding um, that we are all part of the problem and that therefore uh, we are all part of the solution. There are some things at an individual level that we can learn and apply from psychology in our own lives that can help. So I think the first thing to understand, again, this is where the psychology can help, is that we have this ancient capacity for tribalism. You know, we're all motivated to form and divide into groups. Um, we think we evaluate information objectively, but in reality, I think we struggle to do so, particularly if um, that objective assessment puts us out of line with our group. And especially, again, this is a real problem for leaders, whether it's politics or business or academics, if they have come out publicly and committed to a, a particular 
um, view. You know, it's very hard to, to go to go back from that. But um, at this point in history, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why polarization is getting worse. And this is where some of the environmental or structural factors come into play that I think exacerbate our, our individual um, psychology. So as I said, the problem is definitely it's a it's an interaction effect between how we are and us and, and how we're built as, as humans and how that interacts with the world around us. So, for example, you know, social media makes it easier to find people that agree with us. It allows us to filter out people's views we disagree with. And it rewards those who take more negative and strident position. You know, these we get we get more likes and you know, retweets and likes and you know, more engagement makes us feel good. Um, but the key thing is that the you know the algorithms used by tech companies means that polarization is a is a bit of a money spinner for big tech. You know, it pays polarization pays. Um, so there are incentives and very strong financial incentives. Remember, companies are obviously you know, uh, or part of their purpose is is to you know maximize profits, um, and there are very strong incentives to uh, to polarize because they get you know pay they get advertising money from it so there it's kind of a what's called a behavioral market failure so they are reacting to and to the way that humans behave to to make money so i think clearly i think there's a role for regulators or regulation to to help um i guess solve that dynamic another external factor i guess is is uncertainty so again some of the some of the psychological uh research again you know there's definitely room for more but suggests that suggests that when um, we feel more uncertain subjectively, we're more likely to um, identify uh, with with groups. You know, it helps us feel more, helps that we belong. It helps to reduce that that uncertainty that we are uh, hardwired to be averse to. And research from the the IMF at the moment says, you know, levels of global uncertainty are at high t- an all time high. And again, to your point, Cody, I think you mentioned the economic situation. Again, we talk a lot about economic factors or triggers or catalysts of polarization in the book so there's a it's, it's not causal the research does not suggest necessarily it's causal but there is a strong correlational link between for example like the Gini coefficient which is a measure of um, inequality um, and higher levels of, of polarization so we what we argue in the book is that it's it's you know has it is polarization at an all-time worse throughout history that's very hard to say is it getting worse yes there are very various signals but it's almost this perfect storm type analogy but just to end on a more optimistic note i think while some of those i guess wider environmental factors so for example you know reducing uncertainty improving inequality um or reducing inequality rather i should say um they are they are big problems to solve and something that psychology is not going to solve alone there are things individually that we we can turn to psychology for so for example if you have groups that are disagreeing, you know, can we identify a shared goal? So what we have in common rather than what's, you know, what's what's different, for example. Well, uh, Alex, it's certainly one of the big topics of our time. And uh, I'm glad that you and your colleagues have turned your attention to it because I think, uh, yeah, I agree with a lot of your broad strokes there. We're all participating in it and it's going to take a uh, a lot of different ways of attacking the problem, both at individual levels and at systemic levels. And, and structural, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So um, maybe we can wrap up here by uh, uh, asking, what are, what, are, what are three books that have influenced the way you've, you, you think about, uh, you know, all of I'm this? I'm so excited by this question, Koji. I, um, I think it's one of the best questions. I want to do a whole podcast just asking this. <laughs> um, I'll try and be really fast because I'm conscious of time. So... I think um, Nudge, but you know, back in what 2008 was published, Thaler and Sunstein. So I was doing a lot of, you know, much more commercial research then, and I'd never formally studied psychology. I read Nudge, and I remember it was the cafeteria example. So just the power of the external environment on um, how that can affect um, uh, choices and decisions that we make, and it started to help me explain a lot of the, I guess, discrepancies that I'd seen doing more commercial research. So, for example, well. You know, we ask people why they haven't saved for a pension. They say it's because they don't understand. When you give people more information, it doesn't seem to affect their savings behaviours. Why is that? So after really nudge, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of started to fall into place, and that's what really motivated me to study much more formally and get a, a kind of formal qualification in in uh, in cognitive and, and decision science. That's the first one. Second one, this is uh, fast forwarding following the masters was um, straight choices. 
um, by well, actually two of the authors of my UCL lecturers. So Dave Lagnardo does a lot on causal um, causality and learning, and then David Shanks. Um, and then the third author was Benjamin Newell, who's at the University of, of Sydney. Um, and Straight Choices, it covers a lot of the key literature around judgment decision-making, but also learning in a really accessible way. But what I really like about it is that rather than coming away with a narrative of, oh, humans are all really, you know, we're all kind of dumb and, um, you know, we're really bad at making decisions, it puts a lot of emphasis on the relationship between learning and decision-making and the importance of understanding how decisions are made, you know, the context of the learning and, I guess, how we acquire knowledge um, and the feedback that we get following decisions that can help us to make better decisions. So um, I think it's just a much more optimistic view of, of how we make judgments and decisions and the importance of learning. That's my second one. And then my third one is Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. Mm. So um, I never actually studied any Tolkien, again, coming back to my undergraduate doing English literature. I did a lot of Victorian novelists, which I did love, but I've come back to Lord of the Rings in lockdown. So with my, I've, got, I've got two young kids um, under the age of um, nine. Obviously, when lockdown hit, we were writing a book. Um, I had, had a job, and then suddenly had to homeschool, um, and we watched a lot of TV. So please don't judge me. But one of the things I loved reading when I was younger, I loved watching the films, was um, yeah, was Tolkien, and re-watching the film with my kids. And I reread the books, been reading the book to my kids as well. Um, yeah, it's, there's so much polarization in two ways. So one is just some of the the, feet, the binary themes that Tolkien covers in the book so for example light and dark good and evil and then life and death hope and despair but then also the book in itself is polarizing so my husband for example absolutely hates it so he sees really? it as a really simplistic story about a bunch of made-up people trying huh. to throw a ring back in a mountain of fire whereas for me it's a story about you know some of the fundamental things about being human and and that 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 kind of quest to put the ring back in the mountain is you know the, is the key to the story's success so um it was, it was, yeah, it made me reflect on a lot of the themes in, in the book, Poles Apart, but also just about what makes us human. Well, that's, uh, that's really beautiful. I'm sorry to hear that your husband's in the opposite camp, because uh, uh, like, I know that can, uh, that can put a strain on a household. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but no, that's, down, re yeah. that's really beautiful that you've been able to share that with your children. So Alex, thanks for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Thanks, Cody. That was my conversation with Alex Chesterfield. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, definitely check out their new book out now called Poles Apart. If you want to connect further with me, you can do so by subscribing to this podcast. You can do that wherever you may be listening through. And you can also subscribe to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.com slash Substack. Mm, codycommerce.substack.com. But, you know, if you try the other thing too, that'll probably lead you somewhere. At any rate, uh, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.